Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Your Family Dog podcast. I'm Tina Spring. I'm joined today by my co-host, Julie Fudge-Smith, and I could not be more excited to introduce to you episode 200. Way, we're so happy. Um, and a and a guest that I have been trying to get on the podcast for over a year, and she's here. So, Dr. Deborah Jones from Cooperative Care: Seven Steps to Stress Free Husbandry. I don't even have to read it; I have it memorized. Um, <laughs> is here to talk about life, the universe, and everything. And that her book really probably should have just been named 42 for the people who understand the hitchhikers to the guide (laughs) reference. So Dr. Jones has changed the lives of more of the families that I work with than probably anyone else's work and is beautifully gifting the world with both a community that is cooperative and supportive and helpful to one another and really, truly is blessing dogs and cats and their people. Um, I used uh, Dr. Jones' book to get my cat ready for chiropractic care, and he loves it. So um, I'm just giddy, and I'm excited. So welcome, Dr. Jones. Um, well, she thank has you given very me, much. She has told me I'm allowed to just call her Deb. So welcome, Deb. And Julie gets the first question. Oh, exciting. Yes, well, thank you so much for joining us, Deb. Um, as uh, I mentioned before we started recording, I actually met you several years ago at a seminar on the Focus Puppy, which is another one of your books, which I highly recommend, and I've recommended to a lot of my clients, and pulled some stuff out of that seminar that I used until the day I retired. So, great wow. stuff. Thank so, you. anyway, but cooperative care is something that is just, I think, everybody struggles with how do I get my dog to do something? And so what I wanted to know is, is how did you get started? What prompted you to write the book, Cooperative Care? Oh, um, it's a a great question. And it's a long journey from where I started, of course, to where I am now in terms of training and to what got me on this particular path. Um, Because I started out as a psychologist, a behavioral psychologist, um, and taught college courses for 20 some years on learning and behavior. And at the same time, I was into the sport of dog training um, and started out with obedience because that's all there was. So if you wanted to train for something, you trained obedience. Um, Agility started. So I got into that. Eventually rally started and I got into that. And so we taught a lot of behaviors and skills and I enjoyed everything. I just like the process of teaching behavior. To me, that the process is what's fun. Um, And of course, I ran into the case of the dog who did not want her nails done. And she was a lovely, lovely dog. My lab, Katie, my my first competition dog, she would turn herself inside out for me. She would do anything for me until I tried to do her nails. And then it was like a wrestling match. And she always won because she was stronger than me. And I realized at that point... I needed to do something about this. I needed to do something different because um, force and pressure wasn't working. And we often can get by with that with a lot of dogs. You know, we push the issue a little bit. They let us do whatever the thing is. They're not thrilled with it, but we get it done. And so we feel like we have succeeded somehow in, in taking care of them because they let us do this physical thing like, you know, put in airdrops or cut their nails or, um, you know, brush them even, whatever physical thing they need, taking pills. But that got me thinking that there that I should be applying more of the things that I've learned in psychology um, and learning to this particular area. Later on, you know, a dozen years later, I had another dog who had some very bad, bad experiences at the vet and developed an incredibly strong fear and became very reactive, which was not like her at all. So it really startled and scared me to see that response from her. And I knew I had to do something because she was a year old and she was going to have veterinary care for her whole life. And I didn't want to have to, you know, traumatize her. Every time we had to take her to the vet or every time we had to do any sort of physical care for her. So STAR is really what started me down the path of of developing steps and techniques and going back 
to the place where you can always be successful in moving forward from there. Because we tend to start where we see the problem. So the problem is I can't cut my dog's nails. We tend to grab the foot and try to cut the nail. That is way, way far down the line from where we should be beginning to have our dogs comfortable and relaxed while we are touching them and while we are working with them. And so every problem I saw, I saw that we just need to keep going back, you know, and and that's something that I felt like I could do and I was good at, that I could see the early steps that are going to lead to success that will lead to more success. And eventually, it all becomes much easier on down the line. So it was really STAR that started me there. And then I'd seen a lot of um, cooperative care work with a variety of species. I had um, spent some time at Shedd Aquarium um, with Ken Ramirez, who was working with a lot of marine mammals. Um, and I have a good friend, um, Laura Joseph, who works with a huge variety of domestic and exotic species. And so um, I saw the work that she was doing and got to participate in some of it as well. Um, and I'm like, well, why, you know, we have to be careful when we're working with a species. For example, um, we're working with a porcupine. So you have to be very careful working with a porcupine. You don't want to upset them because something very bad could happen to you in the process. Or working with some like a, the big raptors or an, an eagle owl one time we got to work with. And so we have to take steps to keep them calm and relaxed and comfortable as we move into the care they need. And I'm like, why aren't we doing this with dogs? Why are we just sort of bullying our dogs into letting us do these things? And the answer is because we could get away with it most of the time. But I don't think that's good for them. I don't think that's good for our relationship with them. Um, so that really pushed me down this particular path in training. And I've been doing it for, for well over 10 years now. And I just keep exploring it and discovering more and more things that help make us successful with it. So it's it's been a long journey and there's been a lot of influences that have helped me along the way here. And so now at this point in my career, um, I'm retired. It's been, you know, I've been through a lot of different interests in dog training. And so this is my major one now at this point in my career. This is the one that I, I keep wanting to explore and expand and continue working on because I think it impacts every animal, every animal that we care for, every animal that we have in our home, every animal that we ever have to touch <laughs> in any way. I, I'm doing a workshop coming up on and handling, which is basically just being able to touch them in a number of different ways. And I'm like, if it's safe to touch it, you should take the workshop and learn how to do it without traumatizing anybody and getting hurt. Yeah. So one of the things that I love about your Facebook group that's called Cooperative Care is that the individuals who are replying or posting tend to tag kind of who they are in the universe of animal care. So trainers will say, hey, I'm a veteran trainer, or a vet tech will say, hey, I'm a longtime vet tech, so that uh, families are able to navigate, well, who am I getting this free advice on a forum <laughs> about? And it is actually probably the only forum I've ever seen on Facebook where no one's ever coming to fisticuffs, that um, even when someone comes in and kind of posts mm -hmm. for the first time, and maybe they're like, well, three of us held our dog down and cut toenails, that the whole community is really gracious about extending grace to that person. They just don't know better yet and welcoming them into doing it a different way. And that unless it's an emergency, we really don't have to usurp that dog's authority or that cat's authority or that child's authority. And that there's a huge cost to the relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, in my relationships with other humans, you're only going to pin me down, I don't know, once <laughs> before yeah. your stuff's going to be in boxes at the curb. Um, and our dogs don't get the opportunity to break up with us. So instead, things will tend to escalate. And often what I see in practice is that those escalations are just completely miscommunications. The humans in a hurry, the dogs may be a little sensitive about like, okay, why are you being nutty right now? And things that are not an emergency are suddenly escalated yes. to the point that there's big costs to the relationship. So I love that you start with pick a place. So could you, could you talk about 
I often say to people like, they're like, you know, my customer's like, well, this is step one. And I like, I love you enough to tell you, your dog says that that is step 12. Like <laughs> yes. you passed step one half a mile ago. Mm-hmm. So could you talk, to, speak to that a little bit? Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, but let me say just a touch about the Facebook group since, since we started with that first. Um, to me, that's, that's a place that I want it to be very safe and I want it to be educational. And so nobody is going to get blasted or shamed um, for anything they say there. And um, people are going to, I, I'm pretty strong on what I will allow to remain in that group. And if somebody makes a comment that could be misconstrued or that pushes the limits of what's kind and supportive, I will, I will remove that comment um, because it does no good. All it does is start some bad feelings, and then people don't want to ask questions, or they start to argue about what's happening. And so I'm I'm very pleased with the way that group has developed. I started it um, after I wrote the Cooperative Care Seven Steps book, and I just started it to talk about the book, which is it's been out for four four or five years now. And I had no idea it was going to become something a little more than that. It was going to become a really big community. Um, I have a lot of friends who are trainers, so they joined. Um, and then you get a lot of veterinarians that I, you know, th- that I know online and, and veterinary professionals of all sorts. And then they were starting to tell their clients and their students and all of my students and, and the people that I've worked with over the years, um, and especially my online students. So it was a place to me that's it's it's a free resource everybody can come there but just because it's a free resource doesn't have to mean that it's it's bad information or incorrect information or it's anything goes it has to be information that is kind that is thoughtful that follows scientific principles um that's effective right so when somebody says yeah we held our dog down and we did this it's like okay you did that not ideal here are some options instead here. And they people already know that they don't want to fight with their animals. They don't want to make things worse. They really honestly do want to make things better. And so I want to give them a place where it's really comfortable to ask about things and to not feel like you're going to get blasted for it. Well, some um, so way, sometimes I'm, the way we find or go out in search of new information or a, a new process is it goes crazy sideways right and we walk away I mean I don't know you you're probably all much better parents than I was but there were some times that I was like okay mom needed a timeout (laughs) she needed some thinking time I got better at it um and I would and I never you know obviously I never hurt anybody but there were times that I was like and that really didn't come out with (laughs) the intent that I Mm -hmm. intended Uh, And so we do have to back up. It's, it's just part of experiential learning. Right. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's those moments when, you know, you need, you need help. You don't know what you need to do next. Um, You could really use some support along the way. And so I try to keep all those principles in mind when I'm interacting with that group and when I'm dealing with issues that might develop, but we catch them very quickly and we don't let bad things sit out in that group. That group should be a good, safe place for everybody. So I'm very proud of that. And we are coming up on, I think, 23,000 members in that group now. I can remember thinking a thousand wow. was amazing. Um, yeah. So we get a lot of people in a very active group, but I, I'm, I'm proud of it. And I try to continually offer good information there. And I see the people who step up and offer ideas and, and solutions and feedback. They're, they're good trainers and they're veterinary professionals who know what they're doing. So it's a good place to be. And I'm happy with that. To move on to the second thing then about the steps. <laughs> I'm all about steps. I'm all about thinking through the process of how to get where you want to go. Um, so again, um, behavioral psychology was my specialty. So we're always we're not looking at just the behavior. The behavior is the outcome. So the outcome of everything that's happened is my dog will not let me touch his foot. So how do I get there? Okay. And I can guarantee if I just reach out and touch his foot, he's going to say no. Thank you. (laughs) But I don't think so. So what do I do to make my dog say yes? I want my dog to agree 
Um, and, and you can substitute any animal you want to for this. <laughs> any animal you're working with will work on this. I want my animal to agree to being handled. I don't want them to have no choice in the process. Now, we all know that there will be a time when they have no choice. Um, I've had more animal emergencies probably than most where you, we've got to do this thing now. And there's no question. But that's not the majority of our interactions. Um, we let that sometimes be our only interactions is we only do things when they're necessary and it's emergency. And then we wonder why our animals dislike it so much. Um, but I want to move back to the point where they're comfortable. However far back in the in the process that has to be. And so when I wrote the book, I had these seven steps that I came up with. Um, and, and it's funny because sometimes people say, well, something about like I'm on step four and I'm like, oh, let me get my book because I don't even remember what step four was. Um, when I get I'm like, oh, yeah, that was step four. But, you know, step one is, is set up a place where you're going to do your training that's going to be pleasant. I think about like, you know, places where I'm comfortable and places where I'm not. I'm not comfortable at my at my um, dentist's office, no matter how many times I go there. And even if they gave me a lot of candy every time I went there, I would still not be comfortable. The vet is the same for most of our animals. They're not comfortable there. But we need to start at home in a place that's very comfortable for them and to make it valuable for them. And that's easy. For most animals, if I feed you a lot someplace, that's where you want to be. <laughs> it's like, I will go there. My, my dogs will tell you because they will go to the place where they get dinner. And dinner is at five. They will try to start like about 2.30. And it's like, I'll walk by and they'll be in the place. It's like, okay, um, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, is it time yet? But we can make places valuable simply by making it good to be there. And that's always my first step. Set up your place where you're going to do your work. And I set it up um, with my dogs. It's an, It's a grooming table. It's elevated because I don't bend over well anymore. I don't get up and down off the floor well anymore. Um, so the dog has to do that part of the job. And my dogs can jump they jump on an ottoman and then up on the table and then back down again. So I want them to be able to get on and off on their own. That's really important to me because I let if they want to leave, they leave. And that tells me that I was pushing them too hard or too fast or too far. So I, I want to set up a, a grooming place um, or a training place that they can access and that they can exit whenever they want. Um, and there's no penalty for that. In fact, often I'll give them a cookie for getting on and off. I do a whole heck of a lot of that first. And once then I have that place set and they're happy there, then we can move on to the next step in the process, which is actually being calm which <laughs> that's probably the hardest step for a lot of animals is being calm. And, and a lot of this has to do with how we approach training. Many of us as positive reinforcement trainers, training is exciting. It's fun. There's cookies, there's toys, there's movement, there's action. And that's all great until I want my dog to hold still and just wait while I do something to them. And then they're like, but wait, let's have Let's move around a lot and maybe something will happen. And now I'm trying to go the exact opposite direction. Um, and I call this Zen work, which is, you know, Zen should be calm and relaxed and settled. And I had a dog named Zen who was none of those things. Um, I tried to name him so it would be prophetic, but that didn't really work. Zen was action and excitement, and but he was fun as well. But he also needed to learn when to be still. When to just let something happen as opposed to making it happen by moving around and being active. So that's my big second step is we can't really do this work until our dogs can calm down a little bit. And so I have a, a, a series of Zen exercises that I work on, starting with puppies, starting with my, my puppies the moment they come home to me, um, that can teach them that there's a time and a place for being active and moving and playing and throwing cookies and blah, blah, blah. And then there's a time and a place where I just, I just hang here. And she does weird stuff to me, but she pays really well. And I, I always want them to think that, that people do weird things to you sometimes, but it pays off really well. So just let them just be relaxed about it. You know, I wouldn't go to the dentist and try to help them do their work by moving around and being, and that's, I don't want my dogs to do that either. I don't want them like targeting the, the nail clippers. And a lot of people think 
that's a method and an approach they should use. No, I want them to hold still while I bring the clippers to them. So they need that passive, calm, quiet stillness. When I first started writing the book, I asked my my own vet, who I've been with for 20 plus years, what is the one thing you wish dogs could do when they come to you? And she said, hold still. <laughs> said, they're happy to see us and we're happy when they're happy to see us. Or they're afraid of us and they're trying to get away from us. So in either case, if we could just, if they could just hold still, it would make our job so much easier. So that all got went into me saying, okay, that's my second step in the process is, is that you have to have calm, relaxed dogs. And then we have to actually be able to touch them. <laughs> and, and sometimes again, touch is the goal. That's not necessarily where we start. And so um, I worked through, you know, I'm always, how can I break this down further? The further I can break it down, the higher my chances of success are going to be. So if touch is the goal, what's the first step of touch? Show the dog my hand. Hold up my hand, give my dog a cookie. Hold up my hand, give my dog a cookie. Repeat a thousand times. Hold up my hand in different areas. Hold up, you know, the the other hand. Move my hand slightly towards the dog. Give the cookie. So there's there's showing the hand. There's approaching or reaching till we get to actual touching, and then we have all the body parts that we need to touch. Some our dogs will be fine with, some they will absolutely not be fine with, and they will tell us. So then we get into, okay, now you really have to read your dog's body language to know when you're pushing them too far and when they're uncomfortable. And for some dogs, that's very easy. They're very obvious. They they leave. <laughs> that's clear. If you leave, you've given me really important information. And I will when my dog leaves, I will give them a cookie because I don't want to punish that. And I don't want them to think they must stay to get cookies. You, you can leave, get some distance, become more comfortable. Um, and that tells me I need to do something differently next time because I pushed too hard or too far. Can I ask a quick Versus. question in there? Of course. Um, I think that our, our owners are going to go, wait a minute, mm -hmm. the dog left and you yes. gave him a cookie. That seems so counterintuitive. Can you explain why it is that that it's that it is the right thing to do? Because that, that does seem very counterintuitive. Oh, it does, and and people struggle with this idea that I should I should feed my dog for leaving. No, I only feed my dog for doing what I want him to do. But here's the case where we want our dogs to be comfortable with what we're doing, and by leaving, they're telling me they're communicating with me, and they're telling me I'm not comfortable here. I and don't very feel kindly. Yes, they're not communicating in a rude way, <laughs> right? Um, the way I kind of explain it to people, because we get into this a little bit when I'm doing like, like Leslie McDivitt, reactive to relaxed work, mm -hmm. similar thing. You, mm -hmm. I'm thanking the dog for opting in. And I'm also thanking the dog for opting out. So the way I explain it to families is the cookie is thanking them for information, whether that information is I'm good and I want to keep going or whether the dog is giving right. us the information, hey, that was a little bit too much and I I need a break. Yes. So yeah, then what you're saying is that once, okay, so the dog says, I'm really uncomfortable. I'm going to get up and walk away. You give him a cookie. I would assume you're going to end the session at that point, or are you going to sit there and wait for them to come back? Because I, I think that would be the next thing that somebody yeah. would ask. Okay, so I can understand right. that. Now what do I do? Right. I'd probably take a little break there. But a break doesn't have to be long. It can only be a couple minutes. Um, I might walk away, get get some water. I'm going to be thinking about while while I take the break, the break is more for me than the dog. I need to think about what did I do that made my dog feel feel like they had to leave? How did I cause that? And so what can I do next time to get them to want to stay? Not to get them to stay, but to get them to want to stay. And so my it's probably going back to some easier repetitions, more reinforcement. I break it down a little more. Um, and I keep my sessions very short as well. I'm encouraging them to leave like every minute or so anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I do a little bit and I'm like, okay, go get a cookie. And I toss a cookie for them to go get. And I then they it. decide if they want to come back or it's not. It's so helpful. Right. It's it so it helpful. It takes yeah. the pressure off. Instead yeah. of right. you having, having to be here, then you're saying, okay, you did a great job. Let's take the pressure off. You go over here, shake off, have a cookie. And if you want to come back, we'll start again. And I think the idea of taking the pressure off and giving the dog that kind of agency to say, I need a, I need a break. I need, I need to take a breath here. 
Right. Right. And, yeah. and I, really I do it analogous important. to getting your teeth cleaned. Right. I'm at an age where I'm going to remove consent. I'm going to close my mouth mm-hmm. uh, because my neck hurts, because my hip hurts, because, wow, that tastes like a lot of blood. Um, it's rarely that I hate <laughs> my hygienist. Mm-hmm. Right. It's right. I'm in some way I'm physically little, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's not personal. I right. just need to like adjust and okay. And when I'm ready, I'll re-engage again. It's just using that same model for our dogs. And if my hygienist is smart, she's going to stretch and she's going <laughs> to take care, do some self-care mm-hmm. during that break. So yes, I look at, okay, did I contribute something that made the dog uncomfortable? My dogs are mostly adults. If they're laying on their side on the grooming table, that might just get a little uncomfortable and they need a break to go chase a cookie and run around for a minute. And then they, my dogs typically come right back. They're like, okay, let's do this again. So sometimes I think it's just a break check. Like, is there understanding of I can leave? Is that still in effect? Yes. I, um, my dentist will tell me if you want me to stop for any reason, raise your left hand. And so she's told me this for a long time. So, of course, I had to test it um, to make sure it would work. And she said, now, make sure once you raise your hand, just give me a second to finish what I'm doing here before you move, because that could be a problem. But uh, it's it's worked out. So that idea that I, I feel better knowing I can stop the process. I don't do it. The last few times I've been to the dentist, I haven't needed to do it for any reason. But knowing that that's an option. And that's what I want to give my dogs. They can opt out. You can tell me I need a a short-term break from this. And if you choose to come back, great. If I can see that you're not really comfortable coming back, that's fine too. Again, we'll take a break. We'll go off. We'll do something else. um, And I will come back with a better plan. I'm not going to try to pick up right where we left off. I'm always going to go back to an easier level to start again when we start our next session, because you told me that that thing was just a little too much, or maybe the session was just going on too long, which is why I try to break them up very, very short. People think they need to train for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, an hour. I don't know. I'm I'm telling people one to two minutes is is a session. Take a break. Um, And probably half of the feedback I give students is (laughs) your sessions need to be shorter. Your sessions need to be shorter. Your sessions need to be shorter. We learn in short little bits and segments. The longer it goes on, the less value a session has. Short sessions are everything. It's like my college students who would cram the night before an exam and study all night. It's like if you had just studied five or 10 minutes here or there every day, you would have done so much better than you would have learned so much more and retained it than cramming it all in right before the exam. And, you know, you might get by, but it's not good. So So, I have a question about processing. Okay. And 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 maybe you can't answer it, but maybe you can. So uh, what I think I see with dogs and people is that the actual learning happens during the breaks. Like while the experience is happening, it's like the brain is and the body is gathering information and that's all getting in there. Mm -hmm. But it's when we go, okay, take a break, you know, like a blackjack dealer. I show them I don't have any, (laughs) you know, chicken and they go to do dog things often especially free shaping, I think is probably where I see this the most. The dog takes a break. I go and grab a sip of water. I grab more treats. I come back. I'm ready to start. And all of a sudden the dog makes a big leap in learning because during that break, while I was drinking the water thinking, how am I going to teach this to the dog? I really think they're sitting there going, what was the crazy lady with the clicker getting at? (laughs) Mm-hmm. And they're trying to help us too. They're very accommodating for the most part. Right. Yeah. You're I think you're exactly correct. Um information consolidates after the fact. So it consolidates in the brain. While you're actually in the process of learning, it it's not settling. You're getting the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You need that downtime then. And I would always let my dogs take, you know, just take a break. Or if I was at a class, I would put them in a a seminar, I'd put them in a crate for a little while and let them rest. Um, And they'd come out and it's like, wow, 
<laughs> something's been going on while you were in there because you seem better than when I put you away. And I see this a lot in, in cooperative care stuff. What I couldn't do to you in the last session, all of a sudden you're like, eh, got it. No big deal. So yeah, there's definitely a lot to that. Uh, it's called memory consolidation actually is um, that it takes some time for that to become, to go into long-term memory. Um, and if we keep overloading short-term memory, which is what we're working with right now, we just forget the first stuff and we're trying to keep up with what's going on. So that it makes a lot of sense in terms of how memory works. Short sessions, lots of breaks in between without much going on. I try to keep my breaks relatively calm and quiet and just let my dog be a dog or do dog things for a little while, you know, and, and go outside and sniff a little bit or whatnot seems to barely be helpful. So that that is true. And that's going to make a, a huge, huge difference. The other thing I was thinking about when you talked about Ken Ramirez, um, I've also been to several seminars with him and he's great. I, I, you know, anytime Ken Ramirez is on Ken. board, I'm in the audience, man. Mm -hmm. But I remember one thing that he said was if a behavior you're trying to train, and this is a little bit different than cooperative care, but if, there, if it be, you're trying to train a particular behavior and it's taking much longer than you think it should, look at your reinforcers. And so I wanted to address that a little bit too, yes. that, um, it seems to me that if you, one of the things that I have done and I've worked with my clients on what we're doing with, especially if we have to do some counter conditioning or desensitization to a particular thing, we choose a particular treat that is like their kryptonite. This is just their over the top. I love this kind of treat. And we always associate that with, with the scary thing. And I was thinking you could probably do something along that line that would also help to boost this process along that if. I'm giving you the choice, but if you do choose, it's really worth your while because, you know, I'm coming in with whatever it is, is your kryptonite. Right. Reinforcers seem so simple, but they're actually really complicated when you start to work with them. And it's, they it's are. interesting they really to me. Are. They really are because, first of all, they're kind of individual to each animal, what they want, and then their their level of value to each animal, what they find, what they'll really work for as opposed what they jump off a cliff for as opposed to what they'll take but it's just sort of okay and that to me is a whole level of training that comes in my foundation stages before I even get to a lot of other stuff is I want to get my reinforcement in order and I want to make right. sure that I have animals that want to work for food um, because to me it's so much easier I know there are cases where that can't be um, and there are cases where food reinforcers don't work, but it's worth the effort to try to figure out what this particular animal finds most valuable. And I keep a couple of things specific for cooperative care work. Um, the one I, the one that's probably the most popular is uh, cheese in a can. So spray cheese. And in the end, I was surprised because I didn't know that they don't always have that in other parts of the world. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Yes, that's that's it. Tina has a spur spray can right there, ready to go. I have like four of them within reach at the moment, um, but they're all with my grooming stuff and and my cooperative care stuff. So spray cheese only happens when you're in the grooming place, when, when they're on their table, and when we're doing something. And sometimes you get on the table, I give you a little bit of cheese and get off, and we're done. That's your session, which is why they all try to get up there at the same time and then fight each other to be the one that gets to stay on the table. But then there's also other things like, uh, you know, I keep um, baby food, meat flavored baby food is another one that I keep and just use for very high value stuff. Okay. For me, for the most part, when my dogs work, they were working for kibble. I want them to want to work for the lowest value thing possible and still think it's great. But I do have those specific high value things for those specific kinds of training. Um, when I used to do agility, weave poles were salmon. If you did weed poles, you got salmon. I don't care how you did weed poles. As long as you did them, you got salmon. So that built up a lot of value for doing weed poles so we could have salmon at the end of that. Um, so it's. I think it pays a lot to think about that. And beyond then just the reinforcer itself, it's how you give it, the delivery system that you use. And also the whole marker system, which we don't always talk a lot about, especially when we're dealing more with, with dogs that aren't performance dogs. We kind of tend to think of markers as something a little more high level, but I've found it really helps to use markers, which is just a verbal cue that says, you're getting your cookie now, you're getting your treat now. But to my dogs, it says, I'm bringing it to you, which I call a call marker, which mine is good. I say good and I take the cookie to you. 
you don't have to move. So that's great for Zen work. That really helps. They go, oh, I don't even have to get up. You're just going to shovel cookies in my mouth. Great. And then there's the marker that means I'm going to toss this so you can chase it or um, it's on the ground over there. Go get it. So I have some different verbal cues that tell them when that's how you get your cookie. Chasing it as opposed to coming to you, as opposed to taking it from sitting right in front of you. Um, and people get very complex with their marker systems. Sometimes I try to keep it simple because I forget what the marker is for the particular thing. <laughs> I'm lucky I call my dog by the correct name a lot of the yes, time. Yes, yes. Glad I'm, I'm not the only one. <laughs> yes, yeah. kind of like, oh my, yeah. if we make I'm it like, super complex, like if I, you know, I, yes. I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just not, it's not happening. So what that leads me a little bit and you're saying is I, I agree in something like this because food is so quick and easy and understandable that yes. you want to be able to get that reinforcement in Mm-hmm. As close as possible to, you know, as proximate as possible to the behavior that you're rewarding. But I was wondering, can you pre-mac this? You can. <laughs> yeah. So when we talk about pre-mac, it's, it's basically along the lines of, okay, you do this thing I want, and then I'll let you do that thing you want. That's tends to be how I think of it. There's a, a much more scientific way to describe it, um, which is, oh, gosh been a while since I've taught, which is um, less preferred behavior can be reinforced by more preferred behavior. So it's all what the I dog had a definition right here from the focus puppy. In more scientific terms, less desired behavior can be reinforced by more desired behavior, according oh. to David Premat. Right here. See, focus puppy. <laughs> It must be true if it's in a book. It must be true. Which is kind of scary because I don't remember much of what I've written. I've written like 14 books now. So, and and like three or four, no, four of them I co-wrote with Denise Fancy. And so we can't tell who wrote what part anymore. It's like, it could have been me, could have been, yeah, I'm not sure. Sometimes we want to say the other one wrote it because I don't want to claim that part. (laughs) But uh, yeah, you forget over time what you wrote. But yeah, the whole pre-Mac idea. Is that, okay, let me do this thing that you're not really crazy about me doing to you. And now you can do something you want. So you can you could work that if you know your dog's preferences and their desires. And you are careful not to push them too far with the thing that I want to do. So if my dog wants to go out the back door and sees a squirrel out there and wants to go out and chase it, that's a strongly desired behavior. I could do a lot. <laughs> If that was something that was then going to happen, or I could ask them to put up with a lot if that was something that was going to happen. Um, the other thing, of course, we we talk about food a lot as reinforcement because it's quick and easy. You can get a lot of repetitions and most animals will work for it. Um, the other option is to work with toys and play as your reinforcers. That actually takes more skill and gets more complex and slows down the process. It can work. And I've seen it work beautifully where people are using toys and play. But for most of us, I think we really want to just encourage food motivation. And if your dog normally likes food, but they're not taking food when you're working with them, that's telling you something very important too. That's telling you you're pushing too hard, too far too fast. I look at not only will my dog take food, but how do they take food? Are they, are they, are they sharky taking it or yeah, that grabbing Uh, first time I took one of my dogs up to the agility ring for his first run. I was bleeding throughout the whole thing because he grabbed his last treat so hard and and got nailed me in the thumb because he was so excited about being at agility. And it's like, Oh no more. I don't need high value reinforcers there anymore. Right. Leave the liverwurst at home. Yeah. But he was so high and excited, um, which is, you know, often not ideal. We want them at a more moderate level so they can still think and process information. So I'm watching how they take food a lot of the times. And we we do want to be careful with our cooperative care work that we're not trying to use food to overwhelm fear. Right. It's not a bribe. Right. Right. We're not bribing the dog. Right. Well, we're trying to do is condition them, which means to give them a pleasant association with what we're doing. And if we're not seeing that happen pretty quickly, then we need to rethink. We need to back up. And and I say to people all the time, like my OBGYN does not begin with the main event, (laughs) right? They they start with, how are you today? Then they demoralize (laughs) me with the scale. 
Um, then yeah. they poke me with needles. Then we move on to, you know, other mm-hmm. parts. So you know, wait, hey, I've got I've got something for you though, Tina. This is gonna make it so I'm much gonna take you. Skittles next time. Right. Start so reinforcing I, yourself as you go along. I told my doctor that I really hated the weigh-in part, that mm-hmm. that was just really hard for me. And she said, you don't have to do it. You can opt out of that. That is a, and you have the legitimate right to do that because they can test um, your health. They can get other health metrics. You don't have to get weighed in. You can say, so now I have the anxiety of having to tell the nurse, no. So right, I'm not and will sure. she accept your answer? She does. Will she give you a skittle and say thank <laughs> you for the information? But the problem is, is no matter where it happens, is my blood pressure goes up because now I because it's either going up because I'm mm-hmm. anxious about getting at the scale, or it goes up because I'm anxious about offending the nurse. But anyway, but you can say no. It's very empowering. So just and so there again, you. that's the idea that it's very empowering. Something, yes, uh-huh. that you can opt out of something. Though I think we're always worried about negative consequences if we say no um, to certain yeah. authority figures. Yeah, I bet yeah. our dogs are too. Exactly. And like, I don't know. The so last too. time I told someone so, no about touching my feet, three people uh-huh. came in, right, and made it made it so much worse. They didn't make me put my face in a crate and. Held me down. Yeah, so it's like me. You win the battle, but you're losing the war big mm-hmm. time. And right. we do that well, over Except and over. for me, in this particular case, it was the doctor who was the higher authority than the nurse, right? Uh-huh. Said I could do this. And so I kind of wonder if our dogs don't have a hierarchy there too, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. Mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, so, yeah, probably. I do love that you even offer a certification and titles for yeah. cooperative care. I'm in a really fascinating community that is equal parts retirement community and university community. And oh, so okay. a lot of my younger students love titling their dogs and things. We mm. actually have incorporated cooperative care in our puppy class. We actually start it with them and I send them home with syringes. (laughs) That's fun. And show them how much fun it is and that their dog loves it. Right. Because I think for most programs like this, just getting started, like we have angst, like it's not Mm going to work. So in the few minutes we have left, can we talk about how quickly this typically is working in getting started and the real power of that? Because I think that is one of the the huge highlights of this program is how enjoyable it is for handler and dog. Yeah, it, it really can be fun, but things are only often only fun in the beginning if you can be successful. If you start out with failure and frustration, you're not you're going to have a really hard time ever turning that around for the human as well as for the animal. I taught statistics for 20 some years to college students. So I know about frustration and coming into something feeling very with some very negative feelings about it and having to try to turn those around. Um, And so I sort of approach a lot of this as I did teaching statistics, again, break it down into small parts, make it really easy, make people successful. So if we can make help our students see, oh, I only have to do this little part. That's all it is. And I can be successful. I can move through this program. So I I set up the the certificate program because I wanted to encourage people who like an end goal and who like to have a title of some sort to go with it. Um, As I said, for myself, I I enjoy the process so much. I don't need an end goal a lot of times. But I really understand and see that people do. And I think for a lot of people, it's it's really important and helpful that they have that to show that, look what I managed to do. And so as I broke it down into 10 exercises, and then I started out with three levels and and added a fourth not too long ago, I took each of the, the exercises exercises. And I said, okay, what's the first thing you need to do to be successful here? And so I broke it into those parts. So moving through, say, the chin rest behavior, which is one of our foundation behaviors in cooperative care, and a lot of other things. I use the chin rest all the time. And I've seen that my dogs start using the chin rest on me. When they want something, they come to me and they chin rest some body part or like- And with each other. Next to me. Yeah. <laughs> One of my dogs will, if he wants really? what the other dog has, he comes over. It's like, that's how we say. And chin rests and wags his tail and looks all charming. 
And so being that the chin rest is a voluntary behavior, they can choose to do it or not, but it's our foundation for a lot of the stillness exercises. So I can break that down. Let's start with how easy we can make that. What's the first step of this chin rest? Then, you know, so it's to my hand and then we have some variations. Then it's, oh, well, let's teach them a chin rest to something else like a pillow or a stool or an ottoman. And then it's like, okay, now that you're chin resting, let me do a little handling work here and touch your head or whatnot. And so we can move up through all those levels. And I try to always keep in mind, it needs to be something that is attainable without having you know, a huge background in dog training um, that you can, and we have a lot of demo videos, a lot of written instruction. And then we have a lot of other resources that we we give to people when they ask for them. Um, so we have a lot that we can do, but it's like, if you start to move along that path and you see that you can be successful at the first level, why wouldn't you keep going? Why wouldn't right. you go, okay, this, this wasn't as hard as I thought. This wasn't as out of my reach. So what about if I now move on to the second level? And so so some things might be a little more of a challenge than others. And we actually account for that. You don't have to do every exercise perfectly to pass. Um, you get a lot of wiggle room for those things that are you're still working on, but you can still earn the certificate and keep moving ahead and keep moving forward to the higher levels. And then we have the options for people who, who are more perfectionists and want to show a little higher level of ability that they pass everything perfectly. And so we have honors levels for them because um, I know a lot of competitive people in dog training, believe it or not. Wait, there are competitive dogmatic people in dog training? Imagine no. that. Really? <laughs> so, so we huh. don't. So sadly, we're coming to the end of our time, but I feel like we didn't get it all. So I'm going to send you the booking link and we're going to do a part two, I think, because we're about halfway through the steps at this point. And we find my book so I can look at the rest of the steps again. Lessons are better, right? Right. That's true. Before I, before we say goodbye for today and get you rescheduled for an additional session, my question for you is, is there anything that you have going on that you'd really like to highlight to the audience? Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate you asking that. I'm always working on something. And um, right now, I'm, I'm always trying to come up with ways to offer information that are slightly different. Um, so the most recent thing is um, the ebook, the electronic book I wrote on nails, um, Help, I Can't Do My Dog's Nails. And so I did this book totally in electronic form, um, all by myself, which is a big key for me. Um, but I learned a lot of new things along the way about graphics and that I actually enjoy graphic design to a great extent. So there's this ebook and, and it's off of my website, which is K9, letter K number nine, infocus.com. And if you go to books and DVDs, it'll show the books that I've written over the years and have available and the ebook. Um, is at the top of the list there. Right? Yes, so, it is. I looked there today wow. and saw that, and we will make sure that your website, uh, your Facebook page, are all oh, things on the on our um, on our website for uh, this particular. Oh, I appreciate episode, that. So. I appreciate that. So I and I like doing the ebook because I could keep it really, really cheap. Um, and it, in fact, if you join the cooperative care group first, you can get right. The, I got it on a discount. Discount. Yeah, <laughs> members of that group get a twenty percent discount on it. So come on over, join us for free, and then get the book, and then you can start working through that. So that that was my most recent new thing. Um, I do have a handling workshop all about touching our dogs. That's that's starting at Fancy Dog Sports Academy this Sunday. Day. Um, and it's again breaking it back down to the very basics. Why can't you do your dog's nails? Because you can't touch your dog. Um, why can't you put drops in your dog's eyes? Because you can't touch your dog. Why can't the vet examine your dog? Because we can't touch your dog. So let's go back to the foundations of touching. It sounds so simple. And much of what I do in my work sounds really simple, but people can't do it. Dogs can't tolerate it. So that's our stumbling block. That's our first place where we need to move ahead. So I have that workshop. That'll be the last thing I'm teaching online this year. Um, and it starts Sunday and it runs for a week. Um, so it's just a nice little bit, um, but it's very focused on just touching our dogs in many different ways on many different body parts. Um, so that's that's the other thing that I've got going on right now. And so, then after that, taking so a little bit. on behalf of 
my thousands of clients over the years and tens of thousands of pot cakes from Turks and Caicos and Antigua and feral dogs for whom all of this cooperative care is terrifying. Thank you so much for blessing the world with your work because it really it's even it it even works phenomenally well for the atypical I was born in the wild and I've been genetically feral for 250 years dog. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful gift that you created that I get to spread like fairy godmother dust to everyone. I I can't even tell you how I probably tell 10 people a day about cooperative care. Oh, and well, then and link it. So, so tell me, is it better to link it to Amazon or your website? Doesn't matter. Okay. Either way, it'll get people there. Perfect. I think. That's very kind of you to but say. Yes, I can't it does wait. Help. For we you all to need come some back. positive reinforcements. So it's nice to know. Sometimes you feel like you're kind of yelling into the void, and you don't know if anybody's don't listening. Don't we know it? Um, yeah, but it it is, and I, I'm glad that I can do something that can have such kind of a quick. Um, positive effect on on the lives of dogs and on the relationships people have with their animals. Um, to me, that's the whole thing. It's like, is it making your relationship better? Great, I'm doing my job right. If it's not, then we're doing it wrong, and we need to to rethink it. So that you've been very kind, and I appreciate that. Well, we well, would love to we're have very you back grateful. soon, and yes, we're so and we're grateful, grateful you're that here. you yeah that you took the time to come on because I know oh, you are you. a busy woman for retired. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out like I thought it was going to at all. I thought it was. Yeah, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. It's like all I, of a sudden yeah. I've got time to do all the things I wanted to do. And, I and got that was a really back. long list. Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, time it is. consuming. It is, but somehow every day goes by and I don't know, not a lot gets done a lot of days. So well, yep. thank you so Tomorrow. much for joining thank us you. today. Oh, thank you so much. And I, we look forward really to seeing it. you soon. Okay, I'll be back. All right. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.